All right. So, as uh, as Eric just said, we're in the 1700s. No, 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 no. We're in the 21st century, but we're studying the early part of the 20th century. Um, and, and we're still talking about kind of the, the ripple effects of World War I and what exactly that did to our, to our nation and to our world. So everybody's trying to figure out religion. I told you when we last left that we were going to talk about the Cristero War in Mexico. Anybody ever hear of the Cristero War? Nobody ever teaches nothing in history classes anymore. Anyway, so the Cristero War is kind of important, especially in Mexican history, but also in church history. There's a dictator named Porfirio Diaz. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. But he'd been the absolute ruler of Mexico for like 900 years. Been around for stinking ever. And he, he was extremely harsh toward anyone who disagreed with him, anybody who stood against him in any kind of way. Beginning in 1910, there was actually a series of Mexican revolutions to get rid of Porfirio Diaz. And eventually, as a result of that, a landowner named Francisco Madero took power in 1911. And you go, yes, finally somebody who's going to say we're going to have a democracy, somebody who's not going to be a dictator, somebody that the people want, this is great, until he was forced to resign in 1913. In fact, he was assassinated as part of that. Pardon me? That's pretty big forcing. It is kind of big forcing. And he was forced out by a guy named Victoriano Huerta, who was a general, and so he'd done this military coup to leave himself in charge. Who needs a constitution when you have an army, right? So Huerta is now in charge, leading to a nasty full-bore Mexican Civil War, with Huerta being deposed, and he's on the end by the time 1914 ends up. So you're like, okay, just for the last three years we just had all this fighting, all this fighting. But finally, we install constitutionalist Venustiano Carranza. This guy's going to make it right. He says, we're going to support the Constitution. Everybody's going to be happy. Life is good, right? Because it's Mexico, right? Leading to the Mexican government's fight against rebels like Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. Have you ever heard of Pancho Villa? Have you ever heard of Zapata? You know, Viva Zapata? Oh, never Famous, if there are ever two famous Mexican revolutionaries, it's Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata. Which is interesting, because Pancho Villa had been one of Carranza's best generals. When you think of Pancho Villa, you don't normally think of he was the guy fighting for the establishment. But he was. He was helping to lead the constitutional forces alongside other generals like uh, Alvaro Obregón, against Huerta, who was trying to get rid of the Constitution. So you go, Pancho Villa, yeah, no, he's just constitutionalist general. But after they got rid of Huerta, who gets to take power? Is it the president who is leading all of the political side of this, who's got the popular support, or is it the general who is now in control of the army, who also has popular support? Only one of them gets to be president, right? And Puerta, who had said, I've got the charge of the, of the army and I get to be president, just got ousted. So if you're Pancho Villa and you control the army, so who gets to be in charge? So there's chafing between these guys. So Pancho Villa actually gets involved with other revolutionaries like Zapata saying, yeah, let's overthrow these stuffed white shirts. Let's get rid of these guys. Let's... Let's throw off the establishment. You know, Zapata wants to throw off the establishment because he thinks establishment is bad. Pancho Villa wants to throw off the establishment because he wants to be the establishment. He's been fighting for him, and he wanted to be the one in charge. Okay, you tracking there? Which is interesting because he decided not only was he going to get the support of people like Zapata, but he was going to get the support from people like the Americans because they're right next door. And he was going to take advantage of this new mass media thing. So in 1914, D.W. Griffith, remember the guy that did Birth of a Nation? That we talked about before with the Ku Klux Klan. A year before he did the Birth of a Nation, D.W. Griffith produced the movie The Life of General Villa. All about Pancho Villa, starring Pancho Villa as himself. Now, I love these two photographs of Pancho Villa. Because this is the way 
than he normally looked. And this is the way he looked in the movie. You see a difference? How so? The bandoliers and what? The sombrero. So what's the vibe you get off of this versus the vibe you get off of that? Yeah! This guy would totally fight against that guy, wouldn't he? But this movie indelibly painted, painted the American psyche. For all of those of you that had ever heard of Pancho Villa, that it was even an echo in your head, did you think of him as like this poor, noble, revolutionary freedom fighter? Out in the, out in the hills, man. He's a poor guy just like eating cans of beans in the cold. That's this poor guy out in the, in the nowhere. Just like, yeah, not who he was. But that's who people thought he was. So remind me, how important are mass media? How crucial is it to brand something? To brand someone? To brand a message? This is what sticks with people. Anyway. So, uh, the, the Mexican Constitution. New Mexican Constitution from 1917, and it's going to end this revolution. He's going to say, I'm going to bring in a lot of reforms. I'm, I'm, I'm going to reform the power and the role of the president. I, as president, am going to curtail what presidents get to do. This is a decent guy. But it's also going to change things like, like religion and education. The Catholic Church up to this point has had a monopoly on everything. They have controlled large sections of, of, of Mexico. They have controlled almost all the education in Mexico. Every school, every college, it's specifically Catholic. So everything that you do... Uh, even politically, large sections of Mexico were controlled by um, priests and and by monasteries and things. They didn't just they didn't just sit there teaching people about Jesus. They le levied taxes. They made laws. The Catholic Church was in charge of all that. And he said, No, 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 no more of that. The Catholic Church is no longer in charge of that sort of thing. Um, all of our schools are going to be based on modern educational principles. Um, we're going to practice democracy. Even in the Catholic-held lands, we're going to make sure people actually elect officials. It's not that the church puts some guy in charge and he can do anything he wants there. You guys elect your own officials, etc. So, for instance, said priests are forbidden from holding public office. You guys can preach. You guys can do whatever you want, but you can't rule. You can't have political power like that. You can't preach on behalf of specific political candidates. You can't say, Jesus wants you to elect this guy over here. And we also just need to figure out how many priests get to be in. We need to be able to say, you don't get to fill this place with priests so that they can control everything. Now, on some level, that sounds like he's stomping on religious freedom. But up until like that last one, this is what we do in the United States. You know, we, we say, you're, you really have to have a separation from what you're doing for the pulpit and what you're doing in the legislature. Neither Kansa nor anybody else really executed this. They never nailed it down. They didn't enforce any of it. And in fact, his his uh, successor, Alvaro Obregón, he go, wait, he was one of those generals. Yeah, yeah. Neither one of them really enforced it. They're like, we 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 will work on this uh, on this education thing, but we're not going to try to clamp down hard on the Catholic Church. But then along came a guy named Tutanco Caes. This guy decided to do things a little differently. He came to power in 1924, and he said, no, I see the Catholic Church as a dangerous political rival, and they need to be put down. We need to control. And in some levels, I see his point, but you have a, you have a struggle here where you go, now you are actively not separating church and state. You're doing state against church. So he, he passed what became known as the Caius Law, and enforcing a very strict interpretation of all this. There's only one priest allowed per state in Mexico. No foreign priests are allowed to enter Mexico, only, only indigenous priests. Catholic-held lands, including all the monasteries, are now government-held lands. We control all that kind of stuff. Priests are not allowed to wear clerical colors in public or speak against the government in any way. You want to sit in your little corner and preach, that's fine, but you can't do it in public. Now, you can make a strong case that that is not what Kananza ever envisioned from this Constitution, but it's totally what Caius did. And revolution breaks out again in Mexico, because they can't go a decade without this going on. 
So a raid, especially from these central states, and a group calling themselves Cristeros, from Cristo uh, Rey, the, uh, Christ the King, began taking a stand against the government's policies radiating from the central part. There were groups, there were several different groups, several different Catholic groups in Mexico that said, we'd like to try to deal with this politically. We'd like to try to deal with the, this with peaceful protests. But the more radical elements said, no, we're going to take up arms, especially from Guadalajara in the, in the central area. The government started cracking down after they had battle after battle with the Cristeros, and so they started publicly executing priests to put down the rebellion, right? Because that's, as we learn from every Robin Hood movie ever, if you publicly pick, or Zorro, you ever watch Zorro? If you publicly drag a priest or a friar out, surely all rebellion will stop, right? Nobody's going to come in with a whip and stop that. No, no. That just escalated the conflict. Now you've got tens of thousands of Cristeros arming and calling themselves an army, having uniforms and stuff against the modern army of the, uh, of the government. Pope Pius XI officially condemned the whole thing. He's like, no, we're fighting against the government is wrong. Uh, violence is wrong. No. However, I will offer an indulgence to anyone who takes up arms against such a godless regime. Which I find interesting. You know, yes, publicly and officially, we decry all the violence. However, since the Mexican government has declared war against Catholicism, plenary indulgence, you get forgiven for anything that you do. Including for the rebel leader, Father Jose Reyes Vega, who was renowned for being horribly brutal. He was extremely violent, and he got an indulgence for his violence. Anyway, in the United States, what's our opinion going to be about all this? How are we going to respond? It's a little very... Because in general, if you're a United States citizen and you hear about freedom fighters fighting against a government who's trying to clamp down on your religious freedom, who do you tend to find yourself agreeing with? Plus, you just saw the movie. And you saw Pancho Villa, that poor guy, living out in the mountains with his sombrero and bandolier. It's like, oh, he's this poor old freedom fighter guy. So in general, you say, we support him. In fact, the Knights of Columbus raised $1,000, which back then was more, but raised $1,000 to send to the revolutionaries. Right? Except, we're not just talking about religious freedom, we're talking about freedom for Catholics. Catholicism wasn't really a big thing for a lot of Americans back then. Catholicism was still seen as something that dusky-hued people tend to like. Like those Italians and those... Spanish and those Mexicans and the Irish. Bad people <laughs> are Catholics. I mean, when you talk about religious freedom, you talk about good, you know, God honoring Protestantism, not that horrible Catholicism stuff. So the Ku Klux Klan raised $10,000 to send to the government to fight the revolutionaries. So it's just interesting when you look at what's going on in the United States. The United States government said, we just like it to stop. <laughs> I don't even care who wins, just want it to stop. So they sent an ambassador to try to work on developing peace accords, and Obregón was re-elected in 1928. Everybody said, you know, we need somebody a little less crazy. And Obregón's like, yep, I'm going to be a moderate. Let's fix all this. But he was quickly assassinated by a Catholic rebel saying, ah, down with the president. You idiot! This was a good guy! This was a good guy! What are you thinking? So everybody starts fighting again. Luckily, they had an interim president come in who was willing to work with the ambassador. He's like, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down with the Catholic leaders. Let's work this through and create compromises. And he was extremely well protected. <clears throat> and church services are being, are being permitted to be held again. Knock yourself out. you got public services. Christian education is permitted within church context. You guys don't get to run the public education system in Mexico anymore. But you can have private schools. You can have church schools. Knock yourselves out. But you don't get to run the public schools anymore. Clergy are also allowed to oversee your church-held areas. The church owns this fine. We're going to let you own this. Although we're still going to see this as technically government lands. If we need that for something, we're going to take it from you. And we have oversight over the clergy who have oversight here. So we're going to treat you as if you... It's almost like a, like a reservation. You guys have authority within that. But you don't get to break Mexican law there. We're still over the oversight, under the oversight of the government. Overall effect of the war is that the 4,500 priests that were there got diminished down to 334. 40, 
4,500. Now there's 334, serving a population of 15 million people. They were scrambling, scrambling after this. So after 19 years of rebellions, 90,000 deaths, by mid-1929, Mexico's at peace. Except that they weren't. Because the government had brokered peace, and our ambassador brokered a peace between Mexico and the Catholic Church. Because it was a war between Mexico and the church. But they hadn't talked with the rebels, because how are you going to get out there to the hills and talk to these guys? And, you know, several of them aren't going to want to do that anyway. They don't care really about the Catholic Church. They just kind of want to be in power themselves. So a bunch of rebel factions continue to fight. Even after, the, even after, technically, the Catholic Church itself said, no, no, we're, please support the government again, everything's cool, the rebels continue to fight. Because they're like, well, nobody talked to us about it. Until the Pope threatened them with excommunication if they continued doing what he had offered them indulgences to do a couple months earlier. Which I find amazing. It's like, excommunication, God himself says you go to hell. Indulgence, God himself says you are blessed by what you do for the exact same actions. Okay, 1927, speaking about wars, the Chinese Civil War broke out in China because everybody's having civil wars all over the place. If you remember the Qing Dynasty that we talked about for a while, they, they've been in charge since, uh, well, 1644, so almost 400 years that the, the Qing Dynasty has been in charge in China. But the Xinhai Revolution of 1911 Toppled and Empire started a whole new provisional government. And what they decided was it was going to be more like a loose confederation of the tribes. So this flag says the Han, the Red Ones, the Manchu, the Mongols, the Hui, the Tibetans, were all coming together to be one confederation. Yes, we're, we have been warring tribes up to this point. We don't need some kind of strong central empire to tell us what to do. We will work together to solve our own problems. Has anybody ever studied like confederations, like the Articles of Confederation, or the Confederacy itself, or various European confederations. Anybody study any of those things? How well do those tend to work? Amazingly badly. If you say, we're just a loose confederation, well, then that'll last about 30 seconds. Because without any kind of strong central government, China just evolved into a bunch of warlords, destroying everything, taking whatever they felt like. It's almost post-apocalyptic in a lot of ways. You've got these guys with cannons being dragged by horses, going from village to village, taking whatever they felt like taking, and then moving on to the next one. That's China. In fact, it's even referred to as the warlord period. If you watch any movies set in the early teens in China, it's like, yep, it's just roving bands of warlords. High road to China, roving bands of warlords. 1912, the Han in Beijing, the, the biggest of these warlord clans, the ones who, yeah, you got a bunch of these guys running around in skins with with, with cannons knocking over small villages. You go, oh, these guys, these guys sip tea in nice places in downtown cities and things. But they're still warlords who are knocking over villages and stuff. But the Han, led by Sun Yat-sen, brought together several of the stronger and more rational groups and formed what they called the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang. Like, we're going to work together. How about, instead of, we each just, we're a bunch of Chicago gangs, how about we, we we become a syndicate. How about we actually organize this and we can actually do better if we do? It's dedicated to creating a strong, central, democratic, constitutional government. So I think we actually do better if instead of have each of us getting a larger chunk of a dwindling pie, we make a healthier pie, take slightly larger, smaller chunks, but there's pie all the time then. So let's do that. He had a strong general named Chiang Kai-shek. And he's like, we're going to subdue all the rival gangs. The strongest ones get together, and then we're going to take all the little ones and smash them. And we're going to create the Democratic Republic of China. Yay? I mean, yeah, you, you, you should think, oh, I don't like the idea of going and stepping on all the other gangs. Except that's world history in a nutshell, isn't it? How about we step on all the other gangs until we get a king, and then the king creates peace, and then we tend not to have as many wars. Anyway, to get the material and the capital necessary to do it, Sun had turned to the United States and the European nations to help. He's like, I need money, I need arms, I need equipment to be able to bring peace to China. And we did absolutely nothing. 
Nobody helped them at all. So we turned to the Soviet Union. It's like, you guys have just had your own nifty revolution. Why don't you help us to create peace here? And the Soviet Union supported the Republic of China. And the Chinese Communist Party. Soviet Union is like, we'll support anybody who's trying to create peace here. In 1927, Chiang Kai-shek led his troops on what they called the Northern Expedition to stamp out the last little bits of, of political opposition to the Republic of China, including taking out members of the Chinese Communist Party. So that made it a little sticky, because suddenly the Kuomintang split between the right-wing nationalists and the left-wing nationalists. The right-wing democratic constitutionalists, the left-wing Communist Party of China. So you've got the ROC, the Republic of China, and the CPC, the, the Communist Party of China, fighting against each other actively. Chinese Civil War lasted until 1937. The only reason it only lasted 10 years, anybody know what happened in 1937 that stopped the war? European stuff. Close. It, it, yes, but, it, but kind of indirectly. Japan invaded China in 1937. Seeing an opportunity, saying, wait, they're all falling apart, they're fighting each other. The Emperor Showa, Hirohito, if you've ever heard of Hirohito in World War II, and this is where Cliff is talking about some of the European stuff with World War II. Hirohito says, we can take China. And so he sends his general, uh, Tojo, if you've ever heard that name from World War II, to invade Manchuria. It's like, this is a perfect time. The Chinese people said, please, let's stop the Civil War. ROC, CPC, could you please work together? to defeat and defend against Japan. At which point Chiang Kai-shek said, absolutely not. Categorically not, I won't work with them. They're scum. No, we've been fighting them for 10 years. No, I'm not going to work with them. Which is why his fellow nationalist general and the communist leader Cho Enlai decided to kidnap and arrest Chiang Kai-shek until he would actually agree to get at least some sort of a truce which he eventually sort of did, and they sort of worked together. I say sort of because they, they fought on different fronts, they refused to coordinate their efforts and things, but at least they weren't fighting against each other. They were fighting against Japan. But when the Japanese marched on Nanking, there wasn't a very healthy formal resistance because nobody was working with each other. So ten to 50,000 Chinese were killed in the Battle of Nanking itself. Estimates vary. If you ask the Chinese, 50,000. If you get the Japanese, 10,000. We don't know. But the real brutality came after the battle. You've got to remember that to the Japanese mindset of the day, they made the Germans look positively warm and fuzzy. The Japanese thought anybody who is not Japanese is racially inferior, right? Especially other Asian races. You go, well, but you are literally the same racial stock. I mean, not even like the, the, the Germans who say, well, but you have this facial feature or this colored hair. You are exactly the same racial stock as, as, the, as, the, as the Chinese. They said, no, no, no. Because the Chinese and the Koreans look like us, have the exact same genetics, but aren't us. They're Mongols. And there is nothing in the world that offends us more than something almost exactly just like us. So close, but it isn't us. So, to the Japanese, they're like, no, we have absolutely no problem with murdering, torturing, raping everyone we find. We have a moral justification doing it because they're scum. They're, they're mongrels. Japanese officers made bets with one another about how many civilians they could kill. There were two guys in particular like, I want to personally kill more. And so there's was, was this little joke, I killed 40, well, I killed 50, well, I killed, okay, I killed 70, well, I killed 80. All right, well, try and see which one could get to 100 first of innocent, unarmed civilians. Soldiers were encouraged to rape every woman and child they could find. They went door to door, pulling people out and gang raping them, usually to death. They even forced family members to participate in the rapes, or else we'll kill more of your family members. We want to destroy your culture. We want to do everything we can. We want to demand that any raped people, their bodies have to lay naked in the streets, desecrated, and we will do things to desecrate their bodies. We want you to remember that you are scum. We want you to remember that you are animals. We want you to remember that we Japanese are in charge. Foreign missionaries from neutral countries tried desperately to get in between all this, to stop this from happening. They saved thousands of people. 
They, and, 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 and even the people that they couldn't save from being harmed, they saved from dying. They dragged them to hospitals and took care of them. Even though both the CPC and the ROC had both stood against foreign missionaries. They were illegal to both groups. And yet the foreign missionaries jumped up and said, you can't kill me, I'm French. And I'm going to drag this woman to a hospital. The span of six weeks, six weeks, Japanese army raped more than 20,000 people. Women and children killed more than 300,000 people in six weeks. This has nothing to do with the Battle of Nanking. It has everything to do with the after battle from Nanking. And this is just the first few weeks of the Japanese occupation. It lasted for another eight years. I mean, there, there was a group called Unit 731 that made Mengele look like my dentist. They killed 250,000 people in eight years in horrific experiments. The total cost of occupation was 22 million Chinese lives. And, and not just killed, but killed horribly. Now, what's interesting is when we were in, in uh, seminary, which and this is happening in what, early 1940s? When we were in seminary, not that long ago, we had a neighbor who was from Korea, and he felt God's mission, God's call, to go to Japan as a missionary. And so his family disowned him. His church back home disowned him. Because why would you want those people saved? to the Chinese mindset, to the Korean mindset, even today. Even in Korea, South Korea, which is like the most sending nation on the planet, they send out more missionaries by far than anybody else, especially per capita. Even to them, they're like, well, yeah, you can go to Uruguay. Yeah, you can go to America. Yeah, you can go to France. But we want the Japanese to fry in hell. Do you understand why? Think about how history affects even how we do ministry today. How do we feel? How do they feel in Mexico when there's even the perception that the government is cracking down on Catholicism? How do they feel in China or in Korea about Japan? How does ministry work in a world that actually has some history to it that we in America tend not to ever think about? After the World War is over, the ROC and the CPC renewed almost immediately their fighting. It was like, we're totally jumping right back into it. The Soviet Union actively supporting the CPC. And the United States actively supporting the ROC. Like, that's not going to be a problem, right? One of the many factors amping up the Cold War after the war was over. Chiang Kai-shek was installed as the new president to try to bring order, which of course is going to really bug all the CPC people, right? All the, all the communists are going to go, wait, you put him in charge? Even after Shang resigned, the war kept going, in part because Shang couldn't even get, in, get along with his own second in command. They fought in between each other. They refused to support each other's troops. They refused to uh, give materials to one another. They, they took troops and material from one another. So the CPC kept winning victory after victory. We gave the ROC $4.5 billion dollars in like 1940s money. 4.5 billion dollars. They send over 150,000 troops to help support them. But there's, that's nothing when you realize the Communist Party could mobilize millions of peasants saying, aren't you sick of the central government doing this stuff? 1949, Mao Zedong founded the, the People's Republic of China, the PRC, and China officially became communist. Chiang Kai-shek and his followers retreated to the island of Taiwan, where they quietly said, we're still in charge of all of China. We just happen to be doing it from here. But technically, we're still in charge. Chiang Kai-shek continued to lead the government until his death in 1975. So I remember Chiang Kai-shek from when I was a kid. Um, how many people does that name sound familiar to you? Chiang Kai-shek, you remember him? Yeah. You sit there and go, this guy's been doing stuff since 1927. By the way, the PRC, the, the People's Republic of China, technically sort of still allows the existence of the Republic of China. They just can't call themselves the Republic of China. As long as they stay in Taiwan and call themselves the Republic of Taiwan, they can do that. As long as they don't pretend that they have any voice in the United Nations, 
as long as they don't try to have any diplomatic relations with any other superpowers, then they can sit there quietly on Taiwan and think, we're in the real China. And, and it serves various purposes for the PRC to allow that to go on. Which, by the way, is part of why it was such a big to-do when, as Donald Trump was calling various world leaders to say, hey, I want to build good relationships with world leaders around the world, he called the Republic of Taiwan and said, I'd love to have a good relationship with you with the United States. Which is either a brilliant move or a ridiculously stupid move, depending on how you think about it. Because suddenly, China went, how dare you? And Taiwan went, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging us, but you kind of painted a target on us. So is that good because it reminds China that their situation isn't maybe as strong as they thought? Is it bad because it reminds China that they may have to crack down? I don't know. Time will tell. But I just want you to understand when they go, and hey, Trump called Taiwan. You should go. Wait, what? 1928. A book called Christ at the Round Table was published. Yes, and and, uh, and, and Caleb is smiling because he loaned this book to me. A guy named E. Stanley Jones was born in Baltimore. was educated at the Methodist Asbury College. Asbury is a really good college. Um, He's a 23-year-old faculty member there, and he discerned God's call to missions work in India and immediately dropped everything and left to go there. While in India, he made it a point to reach out to the lowest castes. Because remember, in India, there's this definite caste system. You know, the, the upper caste don't talk to the lower caste, vice versa, you don't touch them, etc. You know. He's like, nope, 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 nope. That is not the way God intended this. All men are brothers, so I'm going to focus on reconciliation, man to man, man to God, man to himself. I, 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 like so many missionaries, I'm going to the caste structure. Respectfully, respectfully, respectfully. <laughs> as an educator, not only is he personally, as a, as a missionary, working with the lower caste, but he's also... Speaking at universities, speaking at government functions, places of higher learning. So he's rubbing noses and rubbing elbows with all of the really high caste people, too. That he becomes good friends with Nehru and Gandhi. So he's, as part of his Ministry of Reconciliation, he's consciously working with every level of society. Within a few years, he established himself as, like, the foremost missionary in India. And he published a best-selling book called Christ on the Indian Road in 1925. And he's like, the whole point of this is to say... When we go to countries, and I know we've heard this before, but it's helpful to be reminded of this. When we go to countries, how about, how about we bring Christ to that culture? We express it in a way, we express Christianity in a way that that culture would understand it. Instead of just expecting that that culture is automatically going to do things the way we've always done it in the West. They don't have to become Western in order to become Christian. By the way, does this, how does this affect us today in our ministry? How should that, how should that inform the way we as Christians do ministry here. Yeah. Okay. So, but from all this study, haven't we discerned that, at least generally speaking, Western culture hasn't really shaped by Christianity? And prior to Christianity entering it, Western, like European culture was completely different. So, have we? Well, you can also make the argument, as Jacques Lowell does, that much of Christendom, most of Christianism around the world has been shaped by Western culture. So, so we sit there and go, why? Look at Western culture. They sit on thrones and people bow to them and kiss their rings, just like they do in the church. So Western culture has clearly accommodated to the church. You know. I'm pretty sure the Pope accommodated to Western culture in that. I mean, there are a lot of things that we do in Christianity that we do because that's the way in the West we do it. Um, there are some things that we do in Western cultures, like how about all mass in general? Most of Europe, when they heard about the rape of Nanking, went, Ew! Again! Which is a decidedly not necessarily universal constant. It should be universal. Everybody around the world should have gone, Okay! But a large, large people around the world went, well, I mean, they are the army that wins, I and mean, they kind of get to do that. Christian cultures went, whoa, no, that's wrong, even the ones that are fairly secularized Christian cultures. So yes, there's something to be said for some elements of Western culture being important, but what's the, what's the danger of thinking that automatically anything we do westernized 
is inherently Christian. And if you want to be inherently Christian, you need to be inherently Westernized. Most effective missionaries do adapt to the, the culture that they're in. And not... Exactly. Okay. What, 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 how should that affect the way we do ministry today? We do ministry. Yeah, how do we translate not just into the language but into the culture? You know, go to go to um, the Serengeti and say that Christ washes his blood washes you white as snow. You can't say white as snow, right? They're not gonna understand what snow is. So you gotta find something else. So you gotta translate the verbiage, but maybe you even have to translate the concept. There might be places where there's standing water. How do you express some of the things that are standing order? How do you express it to that culture? How do you express to the culture that says it's good to have multiple wives? Do you say, no, it's automatically bad, you should stop that? Maybe. Do you say, I'm going to do this in stages. Here's how you should treat your wives. You treat your wives like cattle. You shouldn't do that. I don't know what you do. How do you affect that culture? What were you going to say? Which, which brings up a good point is, as we've talked about in Sunday school, and we've talked about in sermons, and we've talked about in the various levels, do we live in a Christian culture today? Is America a Christian culture? You could argue that it is culturally Judeo-Christian as if that were some sort of generalized overview. But are we a Christian nation that thinks about things as from a biblical worldview? In general, no. A large part of what we need to do as Christians is to meet our own culture where they are. And I don't mean accommodate that culture necessarily, but certainly translate to it. We need to interpret into it. Yeah? Rural Home Missionary Association, I've been on board mm -hmm. 37 years. Uh, they have classes now uh, that they can take on uh, working in the rural area compared to working in the city. Mm -hmm. This is probably a poor illustration, but he says when he first came out, this is Ron Fulton, he had grown up in a city and uh, he'd gone to a Bible study uh, during the day and it was mostly women. And uh, he says, I feel like a rooster in a hen house. They corrected, you know, the purpose of the rooster. That's not a good illustration. It's not a good illustration, <laughs> yeah. You have to stop and think about that. Well, and, and just how do you. What are things that we expect people on the street, our, our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our, our students in, in school, what do we expect them to change about themselves so that they're good Christians? If they've got tattoos, do we need to say, well, obviously tattoos are bad, or tattoos fine? Can you be a good Christian and have nose piercings and things like that? Does that have anything to do with Christianity? You're tempted to go say, yes, there's whole portions of the Old Testament say tattooing is bad. Or you're tempted to say, yeah, but that's cultic. It's about cultic tattooing, tattooing names of gods and things on you and body mutilation. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this at all. Have you really stopped and think, thought about, well, what does it mean in that culture to have these accoutrements? Stop and think. Which part of this is okay? Which part of this is not? What part do you need to address? Which part do you not? What's important? What's not? You can't just assume that you can take what you've always grown up in a church and plug it into everybody else's life in the United States, and they're going to understand it and interpret it the same way. Now, what's interesting is part of this educational focus in India, um, Jones co-opted an Indian tradition called the ashram, from a term that means to cease toiling, to cease working. And so he took this emphasis on the importance of getting away from the everyday life, going and retreating to a natural peaceful setting and focusing on spiritual things alongside other people who are focusing on spiritual things. An ashram. Thus, he created what's called the Christian ashram movement, of which the covenant is, is a, a strong proponent of, where people get away from time to time and specifically focus on spiritual issues off at a retreat center somewhere and interact with the Word of God, interact with one another, that kind of stuff. So he helped define the whole concept and practice of the Christian retreat, 
in the 20th century. And everybody that's ever been in the campus ministry says, Oh, thank you. I love those retreats. Those are great. Yes, this is a, this is your pastor uh, 25 years ago. So, uh, and no, Wendy wasn't at this one. So, anyway, but but anybody ever go on a, on a campus ministry retreat when you're in campus ministry? Okay, then you can appreciate it and go, yay, Jones. Now, what's interesting is that even after a couple years later, Jones is like, you know, there is a danger to what I just said. I'm not, I, he had the right idea, but there's an inherent danger. And in his book, Christ at the Round Table, which is based on being at the table, interacting with all sorts of different faiths, all sorts of different Indians, he says, the more I think about, oh, no, sorry. He says, the more I think about it, the more I realize that the most dangerous thing in the Christian church ever did was to send us to India. Not, not dangerous to us. It matters little whether we live or die. But to start a moral and spiritual offensive in the heart of the most religious and philosophical race in the world. And to do that at a time when the weapons of modern criticism and modern, remember when we talked about criticism, higher criticism, that rips down and says, well, the Bible wasn't really written by these guys, and you really can't depend on this, you really can't trust this. When the Western world is in the process of intellectualizing the Word of God away, to be starting a moral and spiritual offensive in the heart of the most religious and philosophical race in the world at a time when the Western world is intellectually ripping down the Bible, when those weapons are available for counterattack, is too dangerous for words. For suppose, just suppose, it, would be, it should be revealed that admit that struggle, that Christianity is only one among many ways, and that its claim to finality is untenable, that its sharp alternatives, that you'll either go to heaven or not go to heaven. You either follow Christ or you don't follow Christ. Those sharp alternatives are not valid. There's only a stage in the evolution of religion and will be passed by, the final stage being a sifted amalgam from the whole. Little bits and pieces from any religion that tends to pass your fancy. What would the result of this be? It's questionable whether, with the conviction of finality gone, Christianity could hold continued sway over the mind of the West. What is your response to this 89-year-old concern? Is it dangerous? Is it dangerous at the same time that the West is intellectually ripping Christianity apart to be pulling the knowledge from the East saying, oh, can't we all just believe pretty much whatever we want to believe? Is there a danger in that? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and not only the general philosophical sense that we were already moving in that direction, but then through India, we brought things like transcendental meditation, yoga, and a lot of different Indian religious practices that are just being, the, oh yeah, this is this is just a healthy thing, mm -hmm. and Christians just blindly following them. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are you suggesting that people will follow the trappings of, of a religion without necessarily following the tenets? Is it possible that people will actually do stuff or enjoy the bits and pieces of religion without caring at all about what those bits and pieces are based on. But if they do that, surely it doesn't affect them spiritually, does it? What else can you say about this? What other concerns that have 89 years later, do we see a nation where people either think religion is in general untenable or that healthy, mature religion just says, hey, Whatever you feel like doing to get you to God is fine. You don't have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You don't have to be that. And that is just, that is yesterday's religion. Yeah, we live in a nation very much like that. Um, again, not to be political, but Trump is under fire for having a, an extreme um, religious fanatic do his uh, inauguration ceremony anti-gay, uh, pro-supernaturalist freak. You've heard about this guy, haven't you? Franklin Graham? And Trump has been under fire for picking somebody as ridiculous and extreme as Franklin Graham. That is seen as a cultural attack to have an evangelical pastor. So how should that inform our own ministry today? If if E. Stanley Jones had a, had a good point there 89 years ago, 
What does that suggest about what we should do about it today? Do we just ignore this and keep preaching the way we did in 1952? Do we say, oh, it is what it is, and just make sure we huddle together like we did in 1952 without preaching to anybody else? We can grow the church by having babies? Do we look at people that think along this way and say, no, you're wrong, you should be Christians? How do you do it? in balance where you say I really need to be in the word of God I really need to understand what draws people closer to God, what draws people closer or farther away from God and I need to make sure that I take a strong unsanded down undiminished stance on stuff that is truth I need to take I need to abandon the need to fight battles that don't need to be fought and in the middle of that I need to be in constant relational interaction and discussion with people I need to know where they're coming from. They need to know where I'm coming from. That I'm not just being old-fashioned. And I'm not just being pedantic. Let me live this out in front of you. Let me live this out meaningfully. Let me show you why this isn't just the religion that makes me feel good. Let me show you why this is what I think is genuine, absolute truth. Or are you going to say, Cliff? I'm sure you've heard this before. Me making a... I did it at church here, but I asked to speak at a men's... Uh, retreat uh, the church of the country. I wore an earring. Yeah, I remember this. And uh, I told him, it was, are we willing to adapt with the people we're going to meet? And one fellow afterwards, and then I took it off halfway through. It was a magnetic one. And it wasn't common. And, uh, a man came up to me afterwards and said, I didn't hear a word you said until you took it, the magnet off. They wouldn't listen to me. And, and, and Again, which is not to say that we don't make statements based on things like earrings, mode of dress, what have you, but is that the thing that should should totally divide us on, on the important issues? Interesting side note before I leave uh, E. Stanley Jones. He wrote a biography of Gandhi called Gandhi, Portrayal of a Friend, or Mahatma Gandhi, an Interpretation. And that was the biography that Martin Luther King Jr. read that he said influenced him to use nonviolence in his campaign for racial equality in, in America. And his personal copy of that, of that biography, King wrote in, in his handwritten notes, this is it, this is the way to achieve freedom for the Negro in America. So what we do even in India about dealing with those people has to do with what we do here in America having to deal with these people. Everything we do matters. Everything that we're saying interacts with everything else that's going on around us and around the world. 1929, the Lateran Treaty was signed. Anybody know what? Anybody recognize this? Okay. Yeah. Ever since uh, King Vittorio Emmanuel II uh, annexed the papal lands back in 1860, the Vatican's officially been part of Italy. Except for that brief time when Pope Pius IX, the guy who, remember this is the guy that came up with the idea of papal infallibility, everything the Pope says is automatically correct if he speaks from the throne. He sided with the French Emperor Napoleon III against Italy. 
Because um, Vittorio had argued that the king of Italy gets to make Italian laws. Like he can do that without the Pope. Um, so France and the Catholic Church held Rome and fortified it against Italy. So there was a time when Rome was just a little bitty bit of France. And so they, they picked a war against Italy and then lost the war, leading to Vittorio closing off the Vatican saying, okay, Pope, you get to be Pope, but you get to be Pope within a locked Vatican. Enjoy. And from then on, the Popes were basically just prisoners of the Vatican. Remember when we talked about that? Okay, anyway. Up until 1929, it's still just a little sketchy as to what belongs to whom, who's in charge of what. So, 1929, they decided that the fascist government under Benito Mussolini will retain political power over Italy. They are in charge of all of that. But the church, the Catholic Church under Pope Pius XI, is going to retain a spiritual monopoly over Italy. The official wording in the, in the treaties was, the Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman religion is the only religion of the state. You get to be the only religion of Italy, and you're going to have sovereign political and ecclesiastical power over what became known as Vatican City. It's 110 acres all around the Vatican Palace. That's your own nation state. Do whatever you want to with that, though you have to agree with any law that we come up with. Any Italian law, you've got to automatically say, okay, that's also Vatican City law. And we'll give you money. Every year we'll give you money. And here's one of this, this, the standoff. So, Vatican City. This is the seal for Vatican City. Because that's the papal mitre and these are the keys of the kingdom. Over the years, that gets tweaked a little bit. So, like in 1984, Italy said, you know, I don't think Catholicism is the only religion in Italy anymore. I think we're going to be a little bit more open than that. Which also means we're not going to give you a stipend because there's that whole separation of church and state thing. So, we're not paying you to be Catholic anymore. So, Vatican City had to change their economy. And the, the economy now is largely dependent on tithes and on the sale of postage stamps and tchotchkes and museum admission fees and banking investments from the church treasuries. So when you have a gazillion dollars and you, you, you invest in IBM, and that's how the church gets money. You, tchotchke? Um, Knick-knack. Uh, mementos. Often cheesy mementos. Never heard of the word Okay. Um, what's really interesting is, if you go to the museums, uh, the museum gift shops have a lot of interesting things, including Egyptian god souvenirs! You can go to the Vatican and come home with your own Egyptian god. Which I just find, I'm not making a theological statement about that, I'm just, I find the irony of it. I would feel uncomfortable if we, I didn't feel uncomfortable if we had a bookstore. But if we had a bookstore, I'd feel uncomfortable with selling something that goes, have your own Egyptian god. Anyway. 2008, Vatican City also successfully petitioned for the right to not have to adopt every Italian law as it comes out, because they're like, increasingly, when you talk about beginning-of-life issues, end-of-life issues, sexual issues, we don't agree with, it, with, with Italian law. And though the Vatican City officially disbanded their military in 1970, the Pope is still guarded by the Swiss Guard, right? Guys that look like this, because their uniforms haven't changed ever. <laughs> Which is not true, because they didn't always look like that. They, they, they looked like everybody else's uniforms. Up until 1914, they looked like everybody else's troops. But in 1914, their commandant, Jules Respon, or Repon, redesigned the uniforms to go retro. Because he's like, no, I, I want to reflect the, the, the church's timelessness. Which is why the Pope dresses like he could have stepped out of the Renaissance. Nuns dress like they could have stepped out of the Renaissance. Cardinals dress like they could have stepped out of the Renaissance. The papal guard looks like they could have stepped out of the Renaissance. We'll stop. Everything freezes there. Why? Why Why do religions do that? How can our religion do that? Why do we freeze time and say everything's going to stay the way it was in 1501? Everything's going to stay the way it was in 1620? Everything's going to stay the way it was in 1952? Why? There's, all, I mean, there's a bunch of different reasons you can go to. That's what we grew up with. And so, um, you know, that's real. PowerPoints? Jesus didn't use a PowerPoint. Jesus used an organ. Right? Big old pipe organ. Read about that in the New Testament. He played a guitar. The King James, the way God intended. 
the Latin the way God intended. Very few people say Greek and Hebrew the way God intended. Um, yeah, very quickly, religion gets tied in with culture, and then it becomes its own culture, and then it becomes pretty much just about culture. It's not a worship service if it isn't in King James. It's not a worship service if it's not in Latin. A lot of people after Vatican II were very upset about that. It's not a worship service, because it can go the other way. It's not a worship service unless somebody speaks in tongues. It's not a worship service unless um, unless the pastor says hallelujah and everybody says hallelujah back. It's not a worship service unless we fulfill this particular subcultural moment that has nothing directly to do with scripture. Do you, do you see a theme? Isn't that exactly the same sort of thing where you can wait, 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 wait. Am I really standing for Christianity or am I standing for my own version of Christianism? Is this just my take on this? It doesn't strike me as so foreign. It's when I look at the Catholic Church, I'm like, ha, you guys all look like you stepped out of 1500, you losers. I don't like this new syncopated kind of music that we have here in our worship service. You go, it's the same thing. Granted, you might be 400 years closer, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're not doing the same thing. Now, this is not an indictment of tradition, though. Tradition is a powerful and a good thing. What we're talking about is, do you understand the difference between Christianity and a cultural Christianism that you are trying to bracket and frame Christianity within? Let's end with this, talking about the Rastafarian movement. Ever hear of Rastafarians? Okay, now, what'd you say? Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm on it. All right. When I say Rastafarian, most people in America either have no idea what I'm talking about, or they mentally picture some Jamaican guy, some black guy with dreadlocks dressed in red, yellow, and green, smoking a lot of ganja, a lot of marijuana. Help me out here. How many of you fit into one of those two camps? Either you didn't really know anything about Rastafarians, or that's vaguely the mental picture you have. Okay. And or you make a mentally picture Bob Marley doing all those things. If, just in case somebody goes, well, you haven't hit my... Okay, now you do. Like, <laughs> but why? Why is this? Rastafarianism did not start in Jamaica at all. It has nothing to do with Jamaica. Right. There was an emperor in Ethiopia who was not a very good emperor. Uh, his name was Yasu. Jesus. Jesus the fifth. But he was kind of a twerp. He didn't let anybody mourn when his, the former emperor, his grandfather, Menelik the, the, the second, died. He's like, nope, because you've got an emperor. You don't mourn an emperor when you've got an emperor. So who cares? I'm the emperor now. So I'm going to disregard daily issues of state because I'm hanging around with my buddies. But the big deal is he was thinking about leaving the Ethiopian Orthodox Church to become a Muslim because all of his best friends were Muslims. And that's what got him deposed. And his aunt, Zudetu, became the crowned empress in his place. But she's only a woman, so she can't rule. I mean, God is very clear about that. Women, you're fixtures. So she needs a regent to act. Okay, please understand I'm being sarcastic. i got to say that just in case somebody's listening to this online going, what? Okay. So she got her, her cousin to come be regent for her, a guy named Ross Tafari. Ross meaning head, and Tafari meaning revered or feared, so he's the most revered one, the head, top, revered guy. Tafari quickly made reforms to try to make Ethiopia very European. He traveled in Europe to get more of a feel for that, while the empress built churches and read her Bible, which is great. But pretty soon, Tafari is in charge of everything. His power is bigger than her power. He's running everything. So, a little too late, she accuses him of treason, saying, you're trying to take the government away from me. It's like, well, I, I have the army. I think we saw this from Mexico and China. If, if I've got the army and you want to pick a fight, you're going to lose. So he won the day. He was crowned king in 1928, and after she died in 1930, he was crowned, and this is his official name, by the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, his imperial majesty, Haile Selassie I, King of Kings of Ethiopia, elect of God, i.e. the Emperor. Ever hear of Haile Selassie? Good, at least a couple of us have. Haile means the power of, and Selassie means Trinity, so Tafari is now the power of the Trinity on Earth, the Emperor of Ethiopia. 
the head most revered one of God. Okay, all that Godism is not lost on people. Everybody's like, oh, wow. There was a guy named Marcus Garvey who was a pan-Africanist um, who saw Rastafari as the embodiment of the strong black African leader. It's like this. This is what we need. And there's also the answer to prayer. Since Garvey had been preaching for years, look to Africa when a, a black king shall be crowned for the day of deliverance is at hand. Look to Africa. We're going to get a strong black king. That's when we should all rise up. So when Rastafari became Emperor Haile Selassie, Garvey's like, yeah, this yellow, red, and green flag of Ethiopia, that should be the colors of being black. That should be all of our colors, about what it means to be an African, what it means to be a strong black man. This is all of Africa's flag. This is all of black men's flag. This, this color scheme, because of Rastafari, because of Haile Selassie. In Jamaica, in particular, where they had spent generations saying, let's throw all the into, into a big pot and come up with something very spicy and colorful. A movement arose that said that Rastafari is not just the answer to prophecy, he is the return of Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh, and Marcus Garvey is his prophet. Interestingly, years later, when Haile Selassie visited Jamaica, and they all greeted him at the airport and said, you are God, he said, yes. So, yeah, no problem with that. They developed a religion that mixed the worship of Haile Selassie as the Lion of Judah, which is why Rastafarians have this lion motif through everything. The Lion of Judah was seeing themselves as the 12 tribes of Israel, and they used a lot of cannabis, a lot of marijuana, which they called ganja. In order to reach an altered consciousness to touch Yah, Yah, God. So, the one thing that they, that Rastafarians absolutely, absolutely believed is that you never use it for recreational use. You would never use a religious item for mundane, secular use. Just like you wouldn't eat your lunch on the Lord's table in the front of our sanctuary, right? You wouldn't just put your peanut butter and jelly there and maybe spill spaghetti sauce and stuff like that. You go, no, it's holy. It's set apart for the Lord. Yeah, so is cannabis. Ganja. So true Rastafarians say, absolutely no. That's all sin, all sensuality, that all comes from Babylon, worldly Babylon, not Zion like we are. They also grew their hair out into dreadlocks because of the Nazaritic vow of, of number six, right? You don't touch dead things, you never drink any alcohol, and you never cut your hair. So dreadlocks are them going, yes, we're all Nazarites. All Rastafarians are by definition Nazarites. By the way, it also physically emulates the mane on the lion. We are trying to be like Haile Selassie, and we're trying to, to all remember that our God is the Lion of Judah. So the dreads, the marijuana, the red, yellow, green, the lion motif, it all goes together in this one big cult. Came to America's consciousness because of Jamaican singer Bob Marley in the 1960s and 70s, who became popular because his music is catchy and good. So just at the right time, just as young Americans are embracing this lifestyle of sex, drugs, rock and roll, drug, sex, racial awareness, social freedom, along came Bob Marley, who, being a Rastafarian, preaches freedom and equality, um, smokes a lot of marijuana, um, has a decidedly, uniquely relaxed reggae style that people hadn't heard before. So young people are always looking for the next musical style. So you go, wait. When we're all trying to drop out, use a lot of drugs, talk about freedom and equality, this guy who dresses simply, uses a lot of drugs, and sings about equality with a new musical style comes on the scene. He's kind of the prophet of our times, isn't he? Like, that is exactly what the 60s are all about, man. That's perfect. So they go, yeah, one heart, one love, let's get together, feel all right. Let's, when you smoke the herb, it reveals you to yourself. Overcome the devils with a thing called love. Yeah, Bob Marley is 1968. He is 1970. Except it's kind of ironic because even though he's not a perfect guy, I mean, he fathered multiple children with multiple different women, in general, he saw himself as a devout Rastafarian. He was very devoted to his wife. He, he said sensuality and, and, and that sort of stuff is all bad. Alcohol, partying, all bad. You don't do that sort of thing. Another quote, herb is the healing of a nation. Alcohol is the destruction. He was the antithesis of the partying mindset of the time, even while he was the absolute example of the attitude that people are going with. 
So, and in the early textbook example of people treating religion like a smorgasbord and loving the trappings of it while ignoring everything about why those trappings exist, Americans said, ooh, Bob Marley, that's the way I want to look. So we have a modern Rastafarian movement where we got the dreads, we smoke the dope, we do all this kind of stuff, we go, yeah, this is great, Rastafarians are awesome. And you go, do you have any clue what you're doing? So here's your homework. The next time you see someone in dreads or with a Bob Marley t-shirt, go up and ask them why exactly they think Haile Selassie is the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> or go ask them why they agree that it's so important never to use sex, drugs, or alcohol in any kind of recreational sense. And if they go, well, I don't agree with that, you go, take the tie-dye shirt off, stop with the dreads, stop with the Bob Marley, figure out what you actually believe. But that's just me. But you got to stop and remember history. Thanks to the rise of this extremely greedy dictator in Ethiopia and to the cult that grew up in reverence to him in Jamaica, which is why you had a Jamaican musician who marketed the trappings of that cult to the United States, the consumption of illegal drugs shifted from being something that was seen by popular culture as what criminals did. Go watch Reefer Madness sometime. People who are really rotten human beings, bad people on the edges of society, opium dens, that's the people who do drugs, shifted to becoming, well, that's what cool, laid-back, socially conscious, anti-establishment people do. It's the cool thing. And almost all the details of our modern, hard-partying, sexy, youth-oriented drug culture are based on that, on a cult that supported a dictator in Ethiopia. And ain't nobody understands that because nobody bothers to look at the history of why they're doing what they're doing. Stop and understand why your culture is the way it is so that you can actually interpret into your culture instead of just preaching at them. That's right. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to, to understand where we come from and why we come from. Help us, Lord, to have a, a better sense of our own history, a better sense of who we are as a nation, a better sense of who we are as a church, so that we can actually embrace one another, we can actually embrace our culture in the healthy ways and stand against our culture in healthy ways. Help us, Lord, to be able to help people understand themselves to draw closer to you. Give all this to you in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.